Hi, everyone. Welcome to What's Your Why, a new podcast showcasing the greatness of people through their life stories. Each episode will capture insight into the lives of people just like you and I, with the intention to connect, align, and create inspiration for and with our listeners. Stay with us through our What's and Why segment, where we dive into our guest perspective with some thought-provoking questions that just might be right up your alley. I'm your host, Helen Dillon, and thanks for joining us. Now let's get into it. From coast to coast, my guest in this episode has done it all. Aside from being one of my closest friends, she's also the epitome of kindness, strength, and love. Horses are her passion and education her goal, with risk and reinvention being old hat tricks at this point. It came to my attention recently that there's a need for her story to come to the surface, and that there might be many people this conversation will resonate with. If you're one of those people, take comfort in knowing that you aren't the only one, and that all your feels are warranted. So without further delay, I bring you my friend, and hopefully yours, Lindsay Ransom, where her reinvention is the name of the game, and fingers crossed if it's your game too, you might find clarity in what that looks like on the other side of What's Your Why. We're here today with Lindsay Ransom, and she is agreeing to share her life story with us. So with that being said, Lindsay, thank you for joining me. We're thrilled to have you and excited to hear about everything that you have to say to us. Well, thanks, Helen. That's so fun. And it's really fun to do this with you. I've known you. I was doing some math and it's kind of scary. I'm not even going to say the number, but it's really fun to do this with someone who I have a lot of history with. Considering I'm only 25, it hasn't been that many years. Very true. And considering you've just turned 18, forget it, right? Not that long. No, not long at all. Well, I'm interested in hearing your uh, your equestrian story specifically because it's an interesting one with lots of dives and turns and pivots and decisions. And I think that your life could resonate with a lot of different people that may be looking at a similar situation or wanting to find themselves involved in a similar situation when it comes to career choices. And we're trying to provide content that aligns with maybe some of what our listeners want to know about so they can go, huh, oh, yeah that sticks with me. I wonder how she did it and, you know, offer a little direction for them. Well, I'm happy to help and be a part of that. Awesome. So then tell me how it all started for you. What sparked your interest in horses and what then got you started in the equestrian industry as a professional? So my grandmother on my mom's side, my mom rode a little bit as a young girl, they moved around and I think they were in England when she rode, but My grandparents ended up settling in Vancouver, actually outside of Vancouver, not far from Thunderbird. Oh. And uh, they had a little hobby farm with no horses, but the neighbors had horses on both sides had horses. And I think as the story goes, I don't really remember it, but I was two or three and I got lost and they found me in the field wrapped around a horse's leg. Oh my goodness. So there was a passion early on. So they borrowed a pony from the neighbor and let me ride around. And of course I had a blast. And then when we came out to visit in the summer, the following years, I got to go take some proper riding lessons. I was really fortunate because my grandmother worked for a class with disabled children. And part of the therapy was therapeutic riding. Oh, amazing. So we got to learn on those ponies and horses and they're so wonderful to learn on. You lived out here with your mom and went back there to visit. Correct. Yeah. Sorry. I left that out. Every summer we'd go visit for a couple weeks. Very nice. Vancouver, beautiful place. Beautiful. And then of course I was hooked. And when we would be back in Ontario, I would harass my poor mother about riding (laughs) lessons. And I I think you had to be a certain age, either six or seven. And uh, I did a YMCA camp Mm -hmm. 
then I took some lessons at Foxfield. I think he sold that property not long ago. I don't think it even exists anymore. But then I started taking lessons at Foxfield. Amazing. And then you came up the ranks like children's hunters, junior hunters, mostly hunter riding first and then switching to jumper riding, that kind of thing. Is that sort of a little bit the path? Yeah. So I started after I took some riding lessons. Uh, then the next, you know, you look to park boarding and my mother found an ad in the paper and it was a pony that John Pierce had. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty lucky to get to go ride with, he was an Olympian at the time. Yeah. So I started riding with him. I think I was maybe 12 or 13 and I had a naughty pony and did the short stirrup mm-hmm. and he helped me buy my first horse. It was an off the track thoroughbred and we did the children's hunters. So that horse got sold and uh, looking for a new horse, I moved trainers to ride with Di Langmuir and had a horse that I bought with her for a while, but it got hurt very early on in our relationship and I didn't even horse show. So Di was very generous and I had horses and ponies to catch ride, a pony that we found in the field that turned out to be a great large pony. And then I leased a jumper from her, Daddy's airplane. He was a great horse. And that's where I got my feet wet in the jumpers. And I also got to catch ride in the equitation a little bit through some very generous customers of hers. It sounds so funny to hear you say I got to catch ride as a junior rider because so many don't get that opportunity. So that's so nice that you were given that early on, because I think it's a huge part in development as a young rider, just learning how to ride different types and helping you make those choices, whether you want to be a professional or not, wouldn't you say? Oh, it's a huge part of it. That's part of being a professional is getting on a horse and understanding it and getting the best out of it quickly. And you definitely hone those skills as a young rider. You know, it's a little bit of luck being in the right place at the right time and having people around you that are going to help you find those rides. Mm -hmm. And don't forget the talent. Well, you know, you got to have the talent to do it. You do, you do, but you have to also work hard. And what is the saying? Hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard, I think is super true. And I, Definitely wasn't the most talented, but I certainly was willing to work hard and that helped. Well, I would disagree. I think talent and hard work and it certainly paid off for you. Well, thanks. So I know that in there somewhere you ended up going to university. Uh, Where did you go? So I went to York University and I studied Mm -hmm. kinesiology and health science. Part of the reason for choosing York was it's largely a commuter school. People who go there Mm -hmm. often live at home or in the city and commute. So I felt like I was getting the college experience, not missing out by not living there. All of my classmates were in the same boat. And I was lucky enough that my parents were supporting my education and they Mm -hmm. were financially able to do that for me, but they couldn't afford for me to live in residence and have a car and the degree. So that was the deal. I could live at home, which meant I could have a car, which meant I could ride. (laughs) through school. Ah, that's very good. Have you used your education in correspondence with your with your work at all? Definitely. So York's kinesiology program offered a stream and I took the stream that studied coaching. So I took classes in psychology, psychology of coaching, theories of coaching. And then Mm -hmm. alongside those courses, I took biomechanics and physiology and basic anatomy, which was people, but it also, you know, basic physiology applies to to all animals and horses as well. And then of course, if I fall off, I can, I have an idea of what I've done or hurt. So there's that side of it too. Yeah. The self-diagnosis that every equestrian suffers from, right? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) 
maybe that was always the plan to be a professional in the equestrian industry, or did you ever have a plan to become a professional kinesiology? Would that be like phys ed? Excuse my ignorance. Would it be like a physical therapist of some sort? Could you branch into that? Of course, when you're a little girl, you think, oh, I'd love to be a trainer for my life. But then you get a little older and you start to realize, hmm, am I going to be able to make a living for myself? Is it something I really want to do? Do I want to turn my passion into a job? Is that a good idea? And when I was in school, I was an amateur and I rode horses for Rob Carey a little bit. I transitioned to uh, having Robert Sharp help me. And I figured once I was no longer a student, being a working student wasn't going to work. So I either at that juncture in time, I either had to become a professional or I had to continue on with school. So I, in my mind, I'd always thought, oh, it would be great to be a physical therapist and Mm -hmm. combine that with my love of horses. So that was definitely something I thought about. But in that moment, I thought, okay, I'm either going to pursue this and give it a go to be a professional or I'm not. And if I try it and I fail, that's okay. I have something to do, something to fall back on, but I feel like I'll have regrets if I don't try. So when I graduated, I became a professional and I was an assistant for Bob Sharp. So what did that look like? You immediately took on the role of being like an assistant trainer or a rider for uh, Robert Sharp? Yeah, I guess I, I maybe jumped ahead a little bit and So during my years in college, I was an amateur and I didn't own a horse and I basically only catch roads. So it was a really good learning moment. And then I was riding just a a lot of different types of horses and honing my skills. So I took a semester off also and went to Florida with Bob and that was really eye-opening. I'd been a couple of times before to Ocala as a junior, but going to Palm Beach and seeing those top hunters and trainers and equitation kids. That was just really exciting and inspiring for me. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get really too vulnerable, but I, I would like to ask you, what made you choose Bob? So at the time when I was riding with Di, she didn't have a professional rider. And Bob started riding some horses professionally, including one that I was doing in the amateurs. So we would work together with this one particular horse. And mm-hmm. he was someone I'd always admired, like many other professionals in Ontario, like Wayne McClellan and Jackie Tattersall and Anna Audi and Darcy Hayes and Dean Scott Walker. There's so many great riders in Ontario. Mm-hmm. And Bob had always been one that I'd watched and admired. And so I think it was through working with that particular horse and his him working with Di, it was a bit of a natural transition to work a little more closely with him. Led you down that path. Mm-hmm. Did you have a defining moment early in your career that offered clarity regarding some of your decisions? It took a bit. I think, you know, when you're starting out as a professional, you you can't expect to just waltz in and have open horses to show immediately. And I certainly didn't. And that's part of it. But I think once I, for a couple of years, had some younger horses and maybe some low hunters and schooling hunters and older horses preparing them. And then I had an opportunity to do a couple of more competitive horses in open divisions. I did some for Balsinki really early on. And that was, I think, really exciting and a big moment as a professional to be asked by someone outside of your immediate barn Mm -hmm. to be asked to show horses for. And uh, she's been a great supporter of mine my whole career. Mm -hmm. And I think another moment I very vividly remember being at the Royal Winter Fair, having qualified in the combines, which when you're in Ontario and you make it to the Royal as a kid, as an adult, as a professional, whatever, it's really exciting. Huge deal. Huge. So making it as a professional 
that, that in itself was a big moment. And I remember being really nervous. And I think the combined start as a night class. So that's even more nerve wracking. You know, the stands are mm-hmm. full and the atmosphere. And I had walked out of the restroom and I bumped into Brady Mitchell and it was his first time as well. Mm-hmm. And we both kind of looked at each other. We're like, whoa, we, we kind of did it. We'd grown up together as junior riders and he's gone on and been immensely successful. And I very vividly remember that, that we both looked at each other and knew that this was a big, big day. But how nice to, in that moment, have maybe even the unverbalized support of somebody that's in sort of the exact same position that you are. Oh, certainly. And I think that's very true about all of the professionals in Ontario. It's a tight group and everyone's supportive of each other, even though your competitors, even as a young professional moving up the ranks, everyone was cheering you on and you were feeling like everyone was behind you to succeed and wanting you to succeed. Yeah, it's a nice place to be. Mm hmm. I didn't explain this at the beginning, but we're talking to you from California, three-hour time difference there. Correct. You moved to California how many years ago now? Eight. Eight? This will, Stop. This, yeah, this will be my ninth year. I thought for sure you were going to say six. No. <laughs> Amazing. Eight years. Uh, wow. And California, not a bad place to be. No, not a bad. Not a bad place. So how did all that come about? Talk to me a little bit about uh, what that transition looked like in your life. Well, it was sort of funny. It wasn't really, okay, I'm going to move to California. It was a conversation I had with a very dear friend of mine, ours actually, Rodney Tulloch. Mm-hmm. And we were at the Royal Winter Fair and he said, you know, I've just, I've heard of this opportunity. There's a rider and she's going on mat leave and this, this great farm needs someone to just fill in for thermal. Would that be something you'd be interested in? And I thought he was crazy. And I was, said that was seemed so far away and that seemed silly. And I, I, I kind of hummed and hawed about that, but he peer pressured me. Mm-hmm. I flew here for a, a riding interview for a couple of days and I immediately loved the people and the atmosphere and they wanted to be fair and said, yeah, why don't you commit to us for the thermal circuit, which is about three months and then you can sort of decide if it's something that is good, if it's a good fit for you, if it's a good fit for us, and we'll just go from there. And you were already sort of transitioning away from the Ontario scene or not even that, but you were sort of transitioning and looking for something completely different than what you've done in the past. I was feeling a little bit stuck in at a juncture where, okay, do I go out on my own? Can I go out on my own? Do I want to go out on my own? Sort of what's next? Yeah. And having some opportunities to be in the States and show in the States, I was curious about how those bigger programs, how that all works and how it would be really eye-opening and educational to be a part of that. Hmm. What did it look like and what were some of the challenges that you faced in making the decision to move to California? So this opportunity to go for the winter circuit really morphed into something much greater. And I, after this circuit, felt very strongly that I should stay, that I had a lot to learn. I had a lot of support from my family, of course, to tell your parents you want to move across the continent. And they've been endlessly supportive my entire career, let Mm -hmm. alone moving. I mean, how many kids say, okay, I'm going to be a horse trainer and then then I'm going to move to California. It's interesting that you bring that up. Apologies for interrupting there. Yeah. I think that so many young professionals, and correct me if I'm wrong, so many young professionals have visions of doing sort of bigger and better things or moving Mm -hmm. to different places to be able to advance their careers. And uh, so many don't follow through with the opportunity. 
And I just want to commend you for following through with that and having the balls to actually do it and take the risk and move forward with that. Because I really do think that a lot of young professionals think, I want to do this and I want to do that. Some of them go to Europe. They do a lot of learning. They do some teaching. They figure out their path. And then they kind of come back and they figure out what it looks like in Ontario. Not to knock Ontario. I mean, I feel very, very fortunate to have grown up in the environment that I did. Not everybody gets to learn taking care of their own pony, not having grooms, doing everything themselves. I That was so, so valuable. And there are many top people in Ontario, but I, I get what you're saying. There, It is a bigger world out there. And even if you end up going back to Ontario, I think going out and learning somewhere else can only make you better. Yes. So in moving to California, obviously, did you come home? So I, I come home every Christmas. I, I make sure I do that. And you can be in the States on a six-month visitor visa. And then if you want to work, you then need a work visa. So that was a bit of a tricky thing that I hadn't didn't really realize would be so tough. You think U.S., Canada, it's kind of the same. But the mm-hmm. labor laws obviously are quite different. So uh, through Newmarket, where I work, they knew of a good lawyer, and she helped me get a P1 visa, which is specifically for high-performance athletes. Mm-hmm. And you have to have results from the last 10 years. I had to have pictures of me on different horses at different venues. They wanted reference letters, and this lawyer knew the ins and outs and what the letters had to say and to get it all processed and be correct so that you didn't have trouble. And I got a one-year P1 visa initially. Mm-hmm. And then I got a five-year one, and I'm currently in the middle of another five-year one. And I hope once this whole COVID situation settles down, I will apply for a green card. Two questions for you. When you get your initial documentation that you can stay in the States for six months as a visitor, can you work during that time? No. Okay. And then my second question is, can you always remain on a P1 visa, or does it have those stipulations that they are either one-year or five-year however many years. I'm quite certain that you can only get them for five years, but you can keep renewing them. Okay. That that is my current knowledge that these things change as the years go by, but that's my current understanding of how it works. Yeah. So you're applying for a green card. That's exciting. I'm hoping to. Yeah. That would be easier and make it a little more permanent and not have to worry every five years that you get approved. Well, and after eight years, it's pretty, uh, it's set in stone. You're staying for a while anyways, right? It's pretty set in stone. (laughs) It is. This is true. What did that look like to um, sort of not up and leave? I know that it was a plan of yours, but what did it look like um, maybe on a personal level to move, like you said, halfway across the country, you know, time difference, flights, friends, family, all of those kinds of things? I think it eased into the transition for everybody, for me, my family, my friends, because I, I didn't up and say... I'm leaving forever. I I sort of up and Mm -hmm. said I'm leaving for a couple months and that just slowly transitioned. And I think everybody around me who saw me and talked to me realized that this was a really good thing. Not that anybody was nothing but supportive, but I think as people realized what a good move this was, people were really encouraged and supportive, friends, family. You know, you use technology. There's a lot of FaceTiming. Mm -hmm. The time change is tricky. Luckily, I live in a beautiful part of the world. So people, I have lots of visitors. It's not like I live somewhere that's not a tourist destination. People are happy to come to San Diego. Yep. So that's that's been a great, great part of it. 
Was there a lot of struggle financially, not in the sense of finances, but was there a lot of struggle in terms of basically trying to reinvent yourself as part of the financial system in a completely different country? For sure. I remember trying to get a cell phone and none of my Canadian credit was applicable right. in the States. Right. <laughs> that was certainly a little bit hard. But So something to think about, folks, when you change countries, yeah. it's not always applicable. <laughs> it's not. It's not. And we have this in our minds, at least I did, that it was, you know, we're just separated by a line. It's essentially yeah. the same thing. It is very much not. The business I ended up working for, New Market, runs very much like a business. So it was easy to get established in that regard and get a cell phone and get a social security number and all that stuff. Yeah, you were up and running pretty quick. Mm -hmm. Very good. So um, tell me, what would you say is the one thing you love most about what you do? I love competing. I, I always have. I remember being young and when I was riding with John Pierce and I couldn't afford to go to every horse show and I wanted to figure out how can I go to every horse show? I just couldn't get enough of that. And I've done the jumpers. I enjoy the jumpers. But for me and the hunters, it's about striving for perfection. I've never got a hundred. Very few people have. So the quest of being better and knowing you can be better every time, I think really is inspiring. During COVID, I have to say, since now we've been out of the ring since March, mm -hmm. I always have, but now even more so, I really enjoy watching the customers and the owners reach goals with their own horses. Mm -hmm. So I do a lot of riding. I don't, I do teaching at the horse show, but not necessarily a lot at home, but I do a lot of riding and preparing of the horses. So when the person gets on and, and something works well for them or they accomplish a goal in the ring, I feel a part of that success. And I enjoy watching that as well. Mm -hmm. Many young professional riders aspire to start their career the way you have. Do you have any advice that you would offer it sounds super cliche, but you have to work hard and not for a week or a month or a year. You have to work hard for a long period of time and you have to be really willing to start at the bottom. You don't mm -hmm. think, well, I was a really good junior rider and now I'm just going to waltz in and have all these opportunities. It's a bit of a clean slate when you become a professional. It doesn't matter. I mean, it matters because you, you've honed some skills and you've learned you know, how to be a good rider essentially. But when you become a professional, there's, there's more to it. And I think that's another thing that people get a little stuck about. It's, it's not just being a rider. There's a lot of things that go into it there. Mm -hmm. You know, you need great horsemanship skills. You need some grooming skills. You need some basic bet skills. You need to know about nutrition. There's lots that play into making you a, a good professional. And I think what I realized when I moved here was not everyone's going to be Scott Stewart or Eric Lamaze or Andre Dugnelli or a top, top rider, but there is a place for professionals who maybe you're really good at teaching beginner riders. Maybe you're really good at breaking horses. Maybe you're really good at rehabbing horses. So you don't necessarily have to be a top, top rider or trainer to be a horse professional and a successful one. You don't have to be good at everything, but you need to be a master at yes. things in your own life. So Find the best person who's a master at what you want to be a master at and, and start at the bottom. Cut their grass if that's where it has to be. And then yeah. be a sponge and work hard. Do you think the nature of the equestrian business now has a direct impact on the future development of professionals? I think it does. I think what you're seeing is you're creating specialists. You're, you're having these kids that are so advanced in their, for their age at maybe one or two things because that's what they've done and they're brilliant at it. Mm -hmm. But in terms of a broad 
knowledge, maybe that's missing. But I mean, who knows? Maybe there's people coming up the pipelines in those EAP programs that are specialists at management or specialists at grooms and you get a bunch of specialists together and off you go. But Mm -hmm. I, I do think it is important to have an underlying knowledge of all of it. If you're running a business or part of a business, you want to be able to do all of the things. Maybe you have people that do those things for you, but at the end of the day, can I turn out a horse to go to the ring? Absolutely. Can I muck a stall? Right. You bet I can. Can I do a tack room setup? Yes, I can. Are there people that do those things? Yes. But do I know how and do I understand the how and the why of all of it? Yeah, I do. And I think for me, that's why I'm so grateful I grew up where I did. And I had an opportunity to learn from people who had great skills. Mm-hmm. Is there one person that stands out in your life, past, present, or future, that you would recognize as being pivotal? So this is a little tricky of a question that I, I thought about for a while, but about 10 years ago, my very, very dear friend, Claire Bennett, passed away suddenly and tragically. And it was obviously profoundly upsetting. We had ridden together for a long time. We worked together. We were roommates for a while at one point. And she had always encouraged me to go after my dream of being a top professional. And I actually, part of it started when she bought a horse off a video through a contact of Bob Sharp's. And it turned out to be a great horse that I had some quite a bit of success on as an amateur. And she was obviously a part of that as his owner and it brought her so much joy. So when she died about a year and a half later was when I moved to California and it was a fresh start for me. Start again. Reinvent. with some new Reinvent is a great word. And looking back, I think it was a way for me to find some meaning in her death. Like she always believed in me. And so I feel this obligation to her to continue to try to be as good as I can be at this. And I know she'd be really proud and she'd love this life that I've created for myself. And I'm not a religious person, but every day I feel so lucky that I ended up here. And I think maybe she was part of that. Absolutely. I'm not a religious person either, but I do believe in angels. Mm -hmm. We all have them. (laughs) We sure do. That's good. I knew Claire and uh, I knew your special relationship and I'm glad that she played such a pivotal role uh, with regard to her positive nature Mm -hmm. before you made the decision to move because you guys were like two peas in a pod. It was (laughs) it was good to see you together. You mentioned that you do some volunteer work. Tell me what that looks like. So my grandmother passed away last summer and so it was a bit of an effort to honor her uh, and and pay, I guess, respect to horses that helped me learn. I go to a therapeutic riding place called Reins Horsemanship Program in Fallbrook. Mm-hmm. It offers me an opportunity to create some some balance in my life for sure. Would you say that volunteering in that capacity is more about people than horses? It is. And I think a lot of the volunteers there are maybe have children with disabilities or are interested in that aspect. So uh, as much as I enjoy the work with the children, I'm also happy and able to give them some experience with the horses as well. For sure. I can imagine it's very rewarding. It's very rewarding. Of course, it stopped during COVID for a while. And the first session was three or four weeks ago. And there's a little girl, I think she's four years old. And the smile on her face to ride Daisy was, was huge because they hadn't been able to ride for a couple of months. And what was interesting to me when I spoke with the program manager about their interest when they were coming back from COVID, because a lot of these 
children are compromised. And she said, you know, it was really interesting. We thought we'd have fewer people, but the mentality is that these children maybe don't have a long life expectancy. And so we're going to make the most of the time they have. And this brings them a lot of joy. So we're going to take the risk and brains minimize it to the best of their ability. But that was the consensus was it was too important to, to not do. Great. Thank you for getting involved in that. Oh, of course. That's important. And uh, thank you. You're welcome. Now's the time for the plug. www.rainsprogram.org. Excellent. And social media presence? Yes. And on Facebook, you can follow them. There's lots of great pictures. You can sponsor a horse. Lots of opportunities to read about the program there. There you go. Excellent opportunity to get involved on whatever level you choose. And now we've come to what some would call the very best part of the show, our segment appropriately named What's and Why's. It's where we get to ask our guests some questions that inquiring minds want to know. So without further ado, I bring you the What's and Why's for your listening pleasure. Who do you look up to and why? So the woman who I work closely with, Lori DeRosa, she's a great friend of mine. She's the head trainer at Newmarket. She's an incredible trainer. She has a great eye for a horse. And although she doesn't ride, I've rarely met someone who doesn't ride who has such intuition and insight for her riders. But I also really respect how she's created a really good work-life balance for herself. I think that's a really hard thing in the horse industry because it's a consuming lifestyle and we get wrapped up in that. But she's managed to cultivate some interests outside of horses like gardening and cooking. And she's created some balance, which in turn, I think, let you have some longevity in this business. Mm -hmm. And I really admire her for that. What is something that brings you joy and why? I have to say my chihuahua, my dog Olive brings a smile <laughs> to my face every day. Uh, we love to go to the beach. Watching her run near the ocean is awesome. Uh, when you look back through your life, what decision brings you the most happiness and why? I think moving to California Bring some happiness. It, it was kind of a risky move looking back on it, and it, it really worked out. And I'm proud of all the accomplishments I've made. Absolutely. And you should be. Thank you. What's something that you feel people get wrong about you and why? Well, I think having lived in America now for eight years, people mistake me for American. And <gasps> I know. Sacrilege. <laughs> and I'm always quick to be, you know, remember, I'm Canadian. Oh, that's right. And again, I'm grateful of how I grew up taking care of my own horses and I'm proud to be Canadian. And so I, I always remind people of that. That's good. <laughs> Who would you like to hear next on What's Your Why as a guest and why? Well, I think Dr. Kate Stevenson would be a fabulous guest. She's a veterinarian with a very interesting story and she's worked her way up to be really a top sport horse veterinarian in the States. And funnily enough, we relocated in the same month. Amazing. I have uh, I have a relationship with Dr. Kate Stevenson as well. And uh, I agree with you. I think that she would make an excellent addition to our new podcast. For sure. Very good. Well, Lindsay Ransom, thank you so much for joining us today. I know we had some technological glitches here and there, but we stuck with it. We persevered and uh, managed to catch this on record. So we will put it together and, uh, and launch fairly soon. But I appreciate your time, your dedication. And uh, most of all, I appreciate your friendship. Well, thank you, Helen, right back at you. It's been a long time that we've been friends and you've always been a big supporter and it was fun to have you out in Thermal when I was just starting out there. Having a familiar face was really helpful and this was fun. So thank you. You're welcome. 
I'd like to thank everyone for joining us for this episode of What's Your Why? Our listeners, guests, and our sponsors too. It's our hope that you enjoyed your time with us and possibly gained some new perspective as well. It's said that we can learn something new every day if we just listen, and that knowledge has a beginning, but no end. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, be safe, be well, and remember, always leave people better than you found them. A Twisted Spur Media Production.